This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I'm Rhoda Roberts. I'm Head of Indigenous Programming here at the Sydney Opera House. And so, on behalf of the Opera House, I want to acknowledge our foundation partner, the Ethics Centre and sponsor, Australia Ethical. Now, earlier, Andrew Bolt did suggest that a welcome to country or acknowledgement of country could be seen by Australians as divisive or racist, I would have to disagree. As a Widgeable woman from northern New South Wales, I see it as our inherited legacy, our birthright and indeed our honouring of protocol that has occurred for thousands of years on this site called Jubagali or Benelong Point as we know it today. So I would like to acknowledge that we do meet on Gadigal lands and indeed we pay our respects not only to our ancestral custodians but today's knowledge and tradition bearers who have continued to caretake country. Today we're going to be hearing from Alicia Garza and Stan Grant on why black lives matter. Indeed. Of all the times in our history when we regard what happened last week, this is the most important discussion we could have. There are some important discussions and conversations about race that need to happen. In the United States, Alicia Garza has been at the forefront of this conversation as an activist and one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. As a writer and journalist, Dan Grant has had a major impact in Australian public life as he speaks openly about the realities of life for Aboriginal peoples. For First Nations Australians, the history and current reality are very different to the situation for African Americans in the United States. We still inhabit our country and have the strength and the weaknesses that come from that fact. We have, however, common realities of death and incarceration. Living with the legacy of very difficult histories and profound racism are shared challenges. There have been many, many links between African Americans and Indigenous Australians, particularly through our politics. On a personal note, my father, the late Frank Roberts, spent several years in the United States studying theology. And he had many conversations and talked and prayed with his roommate, Dr. Martin Luther King. So it gives me great pleasure that we will gain continued shared experiences and histories. I would like to introduce Stan Grant, who is going to host this, this evening. He's a Wiradjuri man, a journalist, a writer, an author. He works across many television networks and currently is with Sky and NITV. But he struck a chord with Australians earlier this year in an evocative speech highlighting that the Australian dream is rooted in racism. Can you please join me in welcoming Elisa Garza and Stan Grant.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming along today. And I also want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land and their elders past and present. It's extraordinary to me that why Black Lives Matter should be considered a dangerous idea. What is, what is a dangerous idea is terra nullius. Terra nullius, the idea that our people were not here, that this was an empty land to be claimed and that the rights of our people would be extinguished. A dangerous idea that led to the massacre of our people, to the poisoning of waterholes, to heads being decapitated and sent back to England museums in glass jars. That's a dangerous idea. It's a dangerous idea when I stand here at Circular Quay and contemplate that in the 1860s and 1870s, my great-great-grandfather, Frank Foster, was living right here in what was then called a blacks camp. His father lay dead in the streets for days unattended until finally they rounded up my great-great-grandfather, his mother and his sisters and moved them to the New South Wales-Victoria border where he then spent the rest of his life being shuttled from mission to mission, sometimes in jail, before dying, finally making his way back home. It was a dangerous idea that said that he did not belong in the country of his ancestors. It was a dangerous idea that when Australia was federated in 1901, that we would be considered not fit to be part of this nation, that we would not be counted in the census. It was a dangerous idea in 1963, the year of my birth, when police came under cover of darkness and at gunpoint and forced Aboriginal people from their homes in Mapoon in Queensland and burnt their homes to the ground. These are the dangerous ideas that we have lived with, the ideas that have told us who we could marry, where we could live, that has denied us our citizenship and continues to deny us our rights still today. It's a dangerous idea that we are still not recognised properly in the Constitution. It's a dangerous idea that we are still the only Commonwealth country not to have a treaty with First Nations peoples. Extraordinary then that we can stand here today and say why black lives matter are dangerous ideas. Especially in this week, or this past month, where we've been reminded still of how our people remained, remained chained to the history of this country. At the history of this country, the history of frontier wars, the history of mission settlements, the history of stolen children, can be linked directly to the treatment of Aboriginal children in detention in the Northern Territory. That those kids with hoods over their heads, tear gassed and beaten, are chained to the same history, the history that was born of Terra Nullius, that is there also in the life of Elijah Doherty, a boy that we have all seen this week 
We've all seen the outpouring of grief and sympathy in Western Australia that has touched all of us around the country. As an Indigenous man, I've been inspired by the movements of the United States. Growing up in the 1970s in outback New South Wales, I was raised on the civil rights struggle of the US, inspired by people like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers. Inspired as well by the ideas, the ideas about justice, about our place in the world, about our humanity. And inspired again by a movement that has grown in the United States to touch all of us around the world the movement that we now know as Black Lives Matter, and that today we pose <laughs> as a dangerous idea. Well, tonight you're going to hear from someone, I suppose, who could be considered a dangerous woman. <laughs> We're gonna be blessed to hear from Alicia Garza, who will speak to us about Black Lives Matter, about the campaign, about how that has generated such a movement across the United States and brought you all here today. Then we'll have an opportunity to speak to Alicia and then open it up to you for questions. So thank you very much for coming and would you please make welcome, welcome Alicia Gale. How's everybody doing? Okay, let's try that again. I'm a call and response kind of girl. How's everybody doing? So first and foremost, I would like to um, acknowledge that we are on indigenous land. And I would like to um, thank the folks whose land this is for having me as a guest for stewarding this land under the worst possible conditions, uh, and for continuing to fight for the world that we all believe can be a reality. You know, in the United States, I think we often don't talk about indigenous people. We have fundamentally erased indigenous peoples. Indigenous people are considered to be a part of the past, a relic of history. But it's important for us to not just remember, but to acknowledge that indigenous people are still here. They are not relics of the past. In fact, indigenous peoples, indigenous nations, are the reason that we are able to be here today. And so it's important for me as a black American woman, to acknowledge that. It's also an honor for me to be here on this stage, 14 hours of flying, <laughs> a stubborn resistance to jet lag. Uh, but in particular, I was reflecting for the last couple of weeks about the fact that often when I get asked to go places, 
there's always some phone calls saying, how dare you? How dare you have that woman speaking at that venue? Because of course, what we're talking about is divisive. In recent months, we have been called violent. In fact, there was a petition in the United States to the White House that garnered hundreds of thousands of signatures to designate Black Lives Matter as a hate group. We have been called by shock jocks, terrorist organizations. We have been called the sowers of hate. And the thing that I just sit with each and every time is there can be nothing more hateful, nothing more hateful than the colonization that has gotten us here. There can be nothing more hateful than the genocide that has been exacted against indigenous peoples, people of color, certainly black people. There is a genocidal project to eliminate black people, not just in the United States, but I would say around the world. There can be nothing more dangerous than that. So I always find it funny. And I'm always shocked, like, you're really gonna let me come out here? <laughs> say a few things? It's amazing. <laughs> so thank you for allowing me to do so and for showing up to hear some stuff. I've also been thinking a lot about this notion of creating a forum where dangerous ideas can be expressed. I don't consider ideas that imagine a new future, one where we all belong, one where we are all connected to one another and not isolated from each other, one where we don't fear each other, one where we don't try to collapse ourselves into some utopian sameness, but instead appreciate the diversity of who we are. For me, diversity is not just about having a bunch of different people in one place, but it is, in fact, about creating a quilt of our various experiences, histories, cultures, traditions, and acknowledging that we depend on each other to survive. That is diversity to me. It's not representation. And it shocks me, right, that that's considered to be dangerous. I don't consider those things to be dangerous. And yet there's a way in which we talk about things that are dangerous as if they are on neutral playing fields. You know, in my country, we have somebody who spews dangerous ideas all the time. <laughs> Some of those ideas, I'm like, are we living on the same planet? I'm just not, I'm, I'm unclear <laughs> what's going on. But it's much more than entertainment, right? The ideas that he spews are ideas that have actually impacted people's lives have decided whether or not people live or die. When we talk about things like building a wall around America, when we talk about getting rid of criminals, 
we are on Mexico's land. Y'all know that, right? <laughs> you know, that thing happened. Stealing land and calling it your own, you know, colonialism. But those ideas impact the quality of life of people. They impact whether or not families stay intact. They impact whether or not people live or die. They impact whether or not people are able to live free or whether they live in cages for the rest of their lives. We like to talk about dangerous ideas as if they're on a neutral playing field, and they are not. Dangerous is not just about controversy. Dangerous is about what we accept. Dangerous is about what we envision. And there are some ideas, to be quite honest with you, that belong in history books as relics, litmus tests, for us to see how far we have progressed as humanity. We are not on a neutral playing field. I cannot debate the existence of your humanity, should you exist or not. That's not dangerous, that's ludicrous. And so I hope that as I continue to give the rest of my comments tonight, that we think about that, that we think about the context of ideas, that it is not neutral, that some ideas become policies that then impact people's lives forever. At one point in my country, it was an idea that we were just three-fifths of a human being. No, no, I'm serious, it's in our constitution. Three-fifths of a human being to be determined, to determine, I should say, land, property, power, voting rights. So how many of us you owned determined how active you could be in the political process. We don't exist on a neutral playing field. And ideas are never just ideas. They impact the way that we live. I spent a little bit of time trying to understand the relationship and the connection between the existence of black people around the world, our relationship and connection to indigenous peoples, and then, of course, here in Australia, indigenous peoples identify as black. I learn something every day. Oh, it's fantastic. And I see the parallels. I was reading some of your important work, Stan, today, and I was reading about how 50% of young people who are incarcerated are indigenous. Same is true in the United States. We incarcerate more people than anywhere in the world. 2.5, 2.2, technically, million people behind bars in cages. One million of those people are black. When we talk about the relationship between our communities, 
we can certainly talk about the ways in which we've been criminalized, the ways in which we've been deemed problems to be solved. I was so excited to see that in your work, Stan, because I say that all the time. Black people are not problems to be solved. We are people to build connections with. We are people who built the United States of America. We're not problems to be solved. But then there's also a deep relationship between us that involves a strong and powerful history and present and future of resistance. Resistance to colonialism, resistance to white supremacy. Yeah, I said it. I'm gonna explain it too in a minute. Resistance to our dehumanization and a powerful, powerful will and desire to live. We have something to teach. Our communities have endured under the worst circumstances, and yet we are still here. And not only are we still here, but we are still creating, we are still loving, we are still living lives on our own terms. And that is powerful. It is something to be celebrated. It's in our DNA. I was asked yesterday whether or not Black Lives Matter as a movement, as an organization, condoned violence. You know, the guy said, well, you know, we see that sometimes when y'all protest, it becomes violent and then there are riots. <laughs> I was like, what am I supposed to say to that? It's a silly thing to say, quite honestly. Everything black is deemed criminal. Everything associated with black is deemed violent. Black women are seen to be violent and aggressive Black men, similarly. But what can be more violent than the project of building a nation? I'll say it again. What can be more violent than the process of building a nation? Where there are already people living, existing, building families for generations. And then a group of people comes in, they say, I, I, I like what y'all got here. This is gorgeous. I'd like it for myself. So let me see how to get rid of you. And then you kill, and you imprison, and you maim, and you steal the dignity from other human beings. You build things that you want, you build things that generate money. You make us make that money for you. You maybe move us off somewhere where we can't be seen, where we're not considered to be a problem. Out of sight, out of mind. Place us on reservations, 
try to indoctrinate us with your own ideas, your own religion. And then you say, I can't imagine why they're so upset. My God, why are they so angry? They're so violent, aggressive. <laughs> and then God forbid one of us breaks through the misery that you caused and creates a situation where we can build a platform upon which to be heard. Then we become exceptions to the rule. You're not like those other ones. You're so articulate. You speak so well. Oh, well, you don't experience that racism. You seem like you're from a nice family. <laughs> Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then you wonder why, when yet another person in our communities is murdered at the hands of the state, whether it be somebody with a badge and a gun, or whether it be somebody behind a glass window telling you that, no, you can't access services. No, you can't go to this school. No, you can't gain citizenship. No, you can't see your loved one. No, we won't build a hospital in your community. No, there will not be a grocery store. You wonder why, when there is a tragedy, emotions bubble over. What could they possibly be so upset about? We've done so many good things for you people. Now, you think I'm being facetious, but that is exactly the dynamic. Always under the surface, there is a rage that bubbles. We never get to forget the violent history that we have become a part of. We never get to forget that. When I walk down the street, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm black. I never get to forget that. Why? Because there's always somebody who will grab their purse or cross the street, make sure I'm doing okay in the store. <laughs> just checking on you, just want to make sure you're good. <laughs> and that is racism, that is white supremacy. It is the notion that anybody who is not white is a problem to be solved. And that can be done by containing. That can be done by controlling. That can also be done by force. And then mostly, it's done through ideas. Ideas are never neutral. Ideas are never, ever neutral. So no, Black Lives Matter is not a hate group. 
Although given the history of what it takes to build a nation, we should be applauded for how much love we have. Black Lives Matter because we all, as human beings, deserve to live with dignity. We all deserve to be able to see ourselves reflected in the communities that we are a part of. We deserve that as human beings. No, we never said that only Black Lives Matter some of you will still say, they only think black lives matter. Doesn't matter how many people I say it to. <laughs> we don't only think that black lives matter, but we do call the contradiction. The contradiction that all lives should matter, but they don't. And that all lives cannot matter until all lives actually matter in practice. And practice doesn't just mean representation. You don't get to feel better because you're around black people, because you have a black friend or a black neighbor that's really nice to you. It's not justice. What it means for black lives to matter is to make sure that there are equitable distribution of resources. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. <laughs> what it means to make sure that Black Lives Matter means to ensure that there is an equitable distribution of resources. If we were to live that principle, that means that some of you would have to give some up, stuff up. What it means for black lives to matter is to change policy, practice, procedure that creates a differential between life outcomes. So, the fact that you have the highest suicide rate in black communities in this country is not just about there being a lot of depression it is about people not having what they need, plain and simple. And so to make Black Lives Matter, you have to make sure people have what they need. And that might mean that you don't get what you want. It's a radical idea. I can see. Some of y'all are like, what you mean now? You done went a little too far. White supremacy, racism, is not about people being mean to each other. You can uphold systems of racism and be a really nice person. You can love your grandkids. You can love your community. 
and you can still uphold racist systems. Shocking, but it shouldn't be. There is a way in which our laws, our customs, the way that we treat each other is set up to benefit white people. Some of those white people are real nice white people. But your benefit means somebody else's lack or loss. So it's not just enough to be inspired by our organizing. It means that you too have to get organized to defect from a system that says that you are somehow better than others, that you somehow deserve more than other people. Then and only then will we be able to get closer to a world where all lives matter, if that's really what you want. Now, In the United States, inside of Black Lives Matter, the network, we say, none of us are free until all of us are free. So what that means is, if we want to live up to the principles of justice and fairness and equality, equity, humanity, dignity, then it means we have to fight like hell so that everybody has it. There should be no more people dying in the Mediterranean. There should be no more people being denied access to the things that they need because they were not born here. There should be no more people suffering on their own land. And certainly there should be nobody that is being killed at the hands of the very people who have been designated the power supposedly to protect and serve. If we are not outraged by the violence that our people experience every single day, then we are not serious about our values. If we can be outraged at somebody breaking a window, but not be outraged at seeing images of 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds with hoods being tortured, something is very sick in our somas. We need a complete rebooting. And if we commit to that, I believe that we can live in a world where all lives actually do matter. Thank you. Thank you, sister. Thank you. Thank Ha, ha, ha.
Thank you. Alicia's come a long way, so I was going to let her just sit here and soak that up, and I was going to bask in whatever reflected glory I can bask in. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just listening to you speak there, something that occurs to me, you know, I've lived in enough of the world to know that the world is not white. <laughs> Reporting in Africa, Surprise. in the Middle East, Surprise. in China, Surprise. and yet... In Pakistan, in the past 10 years, 60,000 people have died as a result of terrorism. But we don't hear about it. But we do hear about it, thank you. But we do hear about it when it's in Brussels, or when it's in the United States, and when it's in France. And I, I don't diminish their lives or the horror of that one bit, but how do we arrive at a point where the lives of the majority of the world don't seem to count for the same? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that is what social movements around the world are trying to accomplish. And it requires a complete reconstruction of our society. Right now, it, it makes money <laughs> and it makes common sense, right? Um, that some lives are valued more than others. I mean, I'm thinking about what happened in, in, in Rio, right, where we had a, uh, one of our Olympic members mm. make up a story about being robbed in Rio. <laughs> right? I mean, they made up a story. They lied. Let me just put it plain and simple. <laughs> they lied, right? But yet, it, people were falling over themselves to try and justify what he had done. Excuse it, rationalize it. Of course. And then you get the excuse or the rationalization that, hey, police die too in the US. And it is not to diminish their lives or the suffering of their families to point that out, but it is used as a juxtaposition, an opposition to the argument that black lives matter. Well, it's used as a red herring, right? I mean, if it's not the plainest example of how some lives are valued over others, then I don't know what is. We lose our minds when the life of a police officer is killed. There are more than 1,200 people who are killed by police in the United States every single year. Nobody cares. We would not know the names of people who were killed by police if it wasn't for this movement. We wouldn't know the names of people like Sandra Bland. We wouldn't know the names of people like Trayvon Martin. We wouldn't know the names of people like Jordan Davis or Renisha McBride, who, by the way, were killed by vigilantes, but protected by the state. We wouldn't know the names of people like Oscar Grant, who was murdered three blocks away from my house. But yet, there are no ribbons on trees. There's no black bands over any of us when any of our people are killed. Mm. There are, the rate of police murder in the United States is like 0.01%. It's more dangerous to be an airline pilot than it is to be a police officer in the United States. But you wouldn't know that watching CNN. You wouldn't know that reading the newspapers. You would think, oh my God, black people are wild in the United States. 
they're killing everybody. They're killing police. They're killing each other. I mean, how do we solve this problem? And Alicia, it's not just, is it either the, the fact of the deaths, but it is the lack of the justice. That's right. The lack of accountability and the lack of different action. So we talk a lot about how we need to reimagine what accountability looks like. Accountability isn't just people going to jail, right? Even though so few police officers who murder ever go to jail, even the ones that do, that's not accountability. Shocking. Jailing people is not accountability. It is containing and putting it away. But we haven't yet figured out how is it that we actually restore communities that have had harm done to them? How do we make all parties whole again? And how do we restore and rebuild relationships when harm happens? And it happens all the time. Um, putting people in jail doesn't do that. Uh, and so there's something very profound for our movements to be thinking about as it comes to this question of justice. What does justice look like? I would say that justice looks like no other family having to have an empty seat at the dinner table. I would say that justice looks like black families being able to raise their children to be adults and for those adults to live out a full life unencumbered by the state. Uh, but we have to figure out how to get there. And it's not an eye for an eye. Mm. Uh, putting somebody in jail doesn't bring people back and our jails don't rehabilitate people. But what you're talking about here is a bigger question, a fundamental question of the power imbalance and the historical forces that have led mm -hmm. to that power imbalance. But something interesting has happened. Black Lives Matter has resonated, has been able to catch fire because social media has given people a voice where perhaps they hadn't had a voice before. Without social media, do you think that Black Lives Matter would have gathered the momentum that it has? I think that without Ferguson, Black Lives Matter mm. would not have become a household name. Uh, and I think that without the organizing and the very brave rebellion that thousands of black organizers and activists have done all over the country, we wouldn't know about Black Lives Matter. It takes people putting their bodies on the line. Mm. If it wasn't for young people in Ferguson protesting every single day in front of the police station, uh, making sure that the messages that they were getting out on television were not the right crafted messages, but it was, here's what's actually going on here, right? Mm. And if there had not been a resistance to a retelling of what was happening there, uh, and had they not used Black Lives Matter as a way to describe what it was that they were fighting for, we wouldn't know about. Just listening to you Black talk, I'm, I'm reminded you speak of Ferguson and Michael Brown killing and how that had created this momentum. I'm reminded of the Montgomery bus boycott back in the 1960s that led Martin Luther King Jr. to prominence. That Black Lives Matter may be the current iteration, but I think you've made this point before. It has always been there. Yes, there's, uh, this is a moment of incredible upsurge that we should celebrate. 
but we did not start this movement. This movement has been active ever since our people were stolen from Africa and brought to various places throughout what became the Americas to then labor on behalf of the nation state. That movement began then, and we are just carrying it forward. And so I do think it's important. I mean, we talk about ourselves as being co-founders of a, 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 a network that has a particular set of politics, values, a vision, but we didn't start this movement, right? We are carrying forward a legacy that we have been gifted. Now, I know there are a lot of people here and there must be some questions that people would like answered. We do have some microphones strategically placed. They're numbered one, two, three, four. If you could make your way to the uh, microphones, if you could make your question as brief as possible so we can get through as many and Alicia can answer as many as possible. While you're making your way there, I just wanna turn your thoughts to the impact that President Obama has had on the United States. When he was elected president, immediately people were talking about a post-racial America. People were saying, no more excuses. <coughs> now you can get to the White House. And yet Black Lives Matter, the shooting of black people on the streets, has intensified during Obama's time. How do you explain that? And your thoughts on Obama's presidency? <laughs> well, we're in for a rude awakening, aren't we? <laughs> uh, thoughts on Obama's presidency. It is historic that I am alive and we all are alive in a time when the United States elected its first black president in its history. Um, and that is something to be celebrated. And also, what? Why has it taken so long, right? Um, and I think that um, there are places where the president has done incredible things. For example, just recently, he granted clemency to more than 200 people in prisons. That's important. That's important. But he struggled to take on the race question. Well, at the same time, so I was you know, trying to be nice. I don't want to take the accomplishments from the man, but also, uh, I think many people wanted more. And I think one of the challenges, of course, of being the first is that you have to chart your own path. And unfortunately, the path that was charted was one that was very hesitant to take on the question of race. Um, and, you know, it was a hard place to be. On the one hand, um, he's being called a Muslim terrorist socialist by the people that he's got to govern with. Uh, and at the same time, when there are black people being murdered, um, you know, he calls for calm and for people to wait for things to be different. Uh, and it's just now, because of the power and the potency of this movement, that he has been forced to talk about race. It took him almost five years to even acknowledge that there was racism in the United States, right? And then even as people are being killed, right? He's saying, okay, well, this is terrible. That could have been my son, but you know, we've got to wait for the process to do what it's got to do. And I think we're all tired of waiting. And I think that's what you see is a tiredness of waiting for somebody else to fix it or, you know, oh, you've just got to participate in the process. And it's like, 
you know, closed door meetings are not going to keep our people alive. I'm, I'm just wondering what Michelle may have said to him just quietly around the dinner table, but that's... <laughs> I like Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have some, uh, some questions. I'll start with number one and then we'll work our way around. Yes, sir? It's working, yeah. My question comes down to when you're striving for equality and we're in a time where inequality is at such a record level in terms of education, opportunity, you know, it, most of the people we're talking about here represent those in the most at-risk areas and the lowest socioeconomic groups. How do we change policies and create you know, better outcomes for these people when the systems keep giving the benefits further up the chain? <laughs> Uh, the first, the redistribution you're talking yes. about. Yes. The first thing that has to happen, I think, is you have to eliminate profit motives from things that people need to survive. Yeah. So everybody should have health care. Everybody should have education. Everybody should have clean water, fresh food. And the reason that people don't have those things is because there is profit to be made by making it more accessible to some people than others. That's why you get kale that's like $10, right? <laughs> you know, it's like free the kale, man. <laughs> um, and then the second thing I think it's really important is to, uh, as you're eliminating the profit motives from the things that we need to survive, uh, we also have to eliminate the racial disparities between who's able to access and who's not. And, you know, I think climate change is a really good example of the dystopia that is coming. Um, as resources become, they're not more scarce, y'all. I mean, they're just controlled by smaller and smaller groups of people, right? And then we use them really poorly. Um, and so then what ends up happening is that things that we need to survive, right, become things that we fight over. Yeah, I live in California. We're going through a 10-year drought. And I think about all the time how they have started to outlaw people collecting their own water. It's illegal to have to do water catchment, which means it's setting the stage for water wars, right? And the people who can pay for clean water, they're good. But the people who can't do that are screwed. And those people tend to be people who look like me. So that's what I think. Thank you. Uh, number three. Uh, hi. Um, hi. I'd just like to know how, how do you... Um, how can we overcome the, the media bias? Mm. Simply. Yeah. Um, this is one thing that I think social media is really good for. Um, too bad we don't own those platforms, right? <laughs> but we're smart enough to create them. Uh, the only way to overcome the media bias, I think, is to have our own media and to really contend for power in that arena. Uh, we were just talking about this yesterday at lunch, right? How uh, people of color, press people, we don't have access to the media apparatus. Some of us have been able to break through that, right? People get mad at me all the time. They're like, how come you didn't talk about me on CNN? I'm like, dude, <laughs> there's so much to talk about. In I'm five sorry minutes, I didn't right? talk about you. 
But this is what ends up happening, right? There's so few of us who can use those platforms that then we start to like eat each other alive, right? So we have to build our own. Um, and social media for now uh, is open source enough that we can bypass what they don't talk about on CNN because most people now are getting their news from Facebook and Twitter and all those things. So getting really smart about using those tools. And then some of us have to be thinking about how we create those tools for ourselves that can be uh, more, uh, more people can access them, right? Um, when Facebook decides they don't like your dangerous idea, they block your account. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Thank you. Uh, number two, and then we'll go to four. Black voices surely must be the voices that drive the Black Lives Matter movement. If that's the case, what role, if any, do folks who consider themselves allies <coughs> have in supporting the movement? And if they do have a role, what kind of practical things can allies do? Mm. Yes. <laughs> Your question is fantastic, and I'm going to start with saying um, that we can't get free without other people. And so, yes, it is our responsibility to define for ourselves what is at stake and what it is that we want, but that can't be in isolation from other oppressed peoples. Um, and the reality to me is that we have to be thinking about how we build a global movement that understands the relationship between our struggles. Yeah? Um, and I, I include white folks in that too, right? Surprising and shocking. Uh, so with that, I'll say this. Uh, I don't like the word ally. It doesn't mean anything. It's just kind of like a passive, it's a way to passively be down. <laughs> you know? Um, but I do like co-conspirators. <laughs> you know? Like, we should be getting together and, like, under the blanket whispering, like, how are we going to take this thing apart? You know? Um, that's an active level of engagement. I'll say another thing. Uh, one of the things I think can get in the way is um, this question of who's more oppressed. We get this all the time. Well, what about me? It's like, black lives matter, but don't like brown lives matter too? I'm like, dude, totally, <laughs> right? Um, and some of it is about really understanding how we got to this place. Um, we are not all impacted equally, but we are all impacted strategically. Oh, shoot, sit with that for a second. Um, the ways that black people are marginalized, oppressed, and disenfranchised is not actually the same as the ways that other groups are marginalized, disenfranchised, and oppressed. But there is a strategic relationship that if we understand that, we can be better co-conspirators. So, uh, I'll give one concrete example. Uh, in the US, we work with a group called Asians for Black Lives. Yeah, represent. <laughs> Um, and we've got the United Nations here tonight. Good thing. We've got Pakistan, I think Rio got a cheer. And it's a national group 
that is really looking at the ways in which Asians in America have been used as a wedge, model, the model of what assimilation should look like, right? And it recognizes that within the Asian diaspora, there is not equity, there's not parity, but also that, that, the, that particular pieces of the Asian diaspora are being used as a wedge against black liberation. And so when we break that, right, we have much more of a possibility to get free together. So here's some concrete things that you can do to be a co-conspirator. You can organize conversations and dialogues in your community about how it is that you perpetuate anti-black racism. You can show up for black lives by being vocal. You can show up for black lives by making sure that you're educated about what's happening. Um, you can also show up for black lives uh, by being useful, right? Um, the last thing I'll say on that is, I think it does go both ways. So what we don't need, right, is the like prostating, like anything you say is what I'm gonna do. That's not partnership, right? But it is about how do we build active relationships of solidarity that aren't based on guilt or deficit, but a recognition in practice that without each other, we're not whole. Just a, uh, just, just a, a quick, I'll, I'll, I'll come to number four in just a minute, but just a quick follow-up that just occurred to me as you were speaking. There is also a competition for the black voice. And who gets to speak? <laughs> You, you were saying before, you know, some people will now criticize you because you've got a voice and you're on the media. Who gets to speak? <laughs> well, uh, I think that it's important for us to uh, model uh, what full and vibrant movements can look like, which is that we don't all think the same. Uh, we don't all have the same experience, but we do hopefully share the same goal. Uh, and, you know, to be quite frank, like when I have the opportunity to share my thinking, my thoughts, um, there are people who agree with that and there's people who don't. Um, and I think the trick here is to allow for uh, a thousand flowers to bloom, mm. as, a, as a famous theorist yes. once said. I think, I think his anniversary is coming up this week, I think. Sure is. <laughs> That's my homeboy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think that part of what this movement is bringing to the forefront is that there is no one voice that speaks for us, right? Um, and that the attempts to kind of boil us down into a couple key leaders is actually pretty racist in and of itself, right? <laughs> Black people don't all think the same. <laughs> We don't all come from the same place. <laughs> we don't all, all know each other. All black people aren't American, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we don't all know each other. But, but most of us at least acknowledge each other. Like. Yeah, thank you. Uh, number four. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, mine is more of a comment. Am yeah. I echoing? It's okay. okay. No, you're, you're booming, it's <laughs> good. Okay. Um, I, it's, it's more of a comment as to my experience with racism in America. So I am a librarian woman who was raised in a, a suburban environment where there were two other black families in the entire neighborhood. So 
I didn't truly see how bad the racism was until I, I met my, hus my now husband, who was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Australian. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, when I told my mom I'm dating this white guy, I had half of the family who were, oh my gosh, you begged a white guy, good for you. And I was like, uh, okay. And then I had the other half of my family who, she, she was 100% she was sure he was gonna bring me here and murder me and I was gonna become a statistic. So for me, it was very, very interesting to see how, how excited not my family in America wasn't so excited. It was my family in Liberia who view the fact that I was marrying a white guy in such this high esteem, like you have made it to the top. Like your child is gonna be biracial, good for you. And my sister who had a child with an African American, everyone else was like, oh, we're so sorry. Maybe next time. And I was just like, Dear God, what is going on here? I had never experienced that before. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't because, even know what else you. to say. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. no, I, I think that does raise an interesting point. You touched on this, and that is the, the colonized mind. You know, gee, you're, you're too smart to be black. You know, look at you, Stan. You're not like the others. That... that is part of our struggle, isn't it, too, to free ourselves from those constraints? Of course, of course, because in a world that values whiteness um, and as human beings that desire to be valued, um, we, some of us can see whiteness as a path to value. Uh, and that is a long process to undo. Uh, you know, some folks call it a decolonization process, mm. right? Yeah. Where we stop giving inherent value to things that are white just because, right? And instead begin to understand that we have value, our cultures have value, um, and that those things can coexist, mm. right? And strengthen each other as well. Sure. Uh, number one, thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Zachary Wone and I'm the Deputy Vice President of Australian South Sea Islanders, Port Jackson. Um, for those who don't know, Australian South Sea Islanders are the descendants of the Pacific slave trade, also known as blackbirding. Um, many of you might not even be aware that we did have a slave trade in this country. Um, so it's more of a statement than a question. Um, I just want to remind you that we did have slavery, uh, close to 62,000 Pacific Islanders, mainly from Melanesia, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, were brought to Queensland and northern New South Wales to work mainly on the sugar cane. Um, if, if it wasn't for Australian South Sea Islanders, uh, the sugar industry in this country would never have got off the ground. So, and, and the, the sad, even after they were culturally kidnapped, um, the next chapter was under the White Australia policy in 1901. There was a mass deportation. We were actually the only group in this country, um, aside from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, who we have a strong kinship with, who were actually targeted by racist legislation to be sent back. And, but we're still here. We have descendants in this room. If, if I can ask you to stand up. Oh, sure. <clears throat> so you can, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you, brother. So thank, thank you, you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Let's, uh, let's go to number two and then we'll come to number three if there's someone there. Number two. 
Thank you for a, just a fantastic session, Alicia and Stan. I'd like to call out some of my white privilege in that I am a monolingual English speaker. And I'm studying to be a teacher, and I've started to question why, when we talk about bilingualism in schools, and I think it's incredibly valuable, we seem to talk a lot about French and European languages, we talk a lot about Asian languages, we never seem to talk about paying respect to Indigenous peoples and actually learning the local languages in the school location. And I'm wondering why we don't pay respect to Indigenous people by bothering to learn about them. Thank you. Can I, I, I just say thank you. Um, my, my father's been very involved in keeping our language, Wiradjuri language, alive. And, uh, you know, there's a whole new generation now of Wiradjuri children who will speak fluently a language that was on the verge of <coughs> disappearing. And uh, it's been a great source of pride. It's been a great source of pride to see my father do that in his life and for my children to be able to learn the language of their ancestors. As equally, um, it is that we can speak, you know, Chinese or French and, you know, I, 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 I like to be able to to speak Chinese. Um, it, it, it's important to be part of a world and to be able to share in everything that the world has to offer. But it is interesting, isn't it, that if you were to pack a bag and fly to France tomorrow, you'd take a French phrase book with you and yet we're living in this country where there were hundreds of languages and people can't even say hello often. So it's, uh, no, it's worthwhile thinking about. Can I just pose that to you actually you, you spoke before, Alicia, about the power imbalance and colonisation, the use of the media, the way words are used, even the fact that you have to express yourself in a language that was imposed on you uh, creates a, a power imbalance, doesn't it? There is a tension in just even expressing the ideas authentically about who you are and what you represent. Absolutely, and it's, it's on purpose. And the, you see how language is used. A riot to one person is a protest to someone else. Absolutely. And, I mean, like I said, I was reading your work uh, this morning and, and you talked about how language uh, places you. Mm. And when we look at uh, indigenous peoples around the world, right, um, one of the major challenges that we see is that language is dying. And that has been a project for a long time. Um, black people were beaten for using our language. Indigenous people were beaten for using their language, right? Jailed in some cases, right? And a lot of that has to do with building the colonial project, right? And so, there is a reason why we don't learn indigenous languages, but we do learn French and Spanish and, you know, whatever else, right? Because, uh, to be quite frank, to learn indigenous language would also place indigenous people in a way that would make many people very uncomfortable. You'd have to face the fact, right, that we're on stolen land, using stolen resources, Right? We'd have to do that here, quite frankly. Um, so I think that's the why. And then the project that you're talking about, I think, is really fascinating. Mm. 
it would create a lot of ripples in the school you work in, I bet you. Thank you. Is there anyone at number three? Yeah. Hey. Hi. This, I'm, I'm sorry, this may be, we may get one more after this if, we, if we're quick, thank you. I'm the Pakistani who shouted all ah, the way from the okay. top. Thank you very much for... Jeevay Pakistan. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you for shedding a light on a tragedy which no one seems to give a damn about anymore. People die, suicide attacks, big shit, let's move on. Um, I wanted to ask you, you raised a very important point on how do you decolonize the mentality? If you hear my English, I guess I'm as close to a native English speaker as can be. But every time I've applied for a job in the Middle East or other countries, I've always been told, but you're not a native English speaker. And other times I've been told, oh, but your passport's not Western. So the one job that I was able to get at the American school as an English teacher, the administration would go to great pains to sort of be like, we're so different. We chose you despite you not being Western. They would say that to me, like very honestly. They'd parade me as part of their diversity. The one Pakistani in 150 Western people. How, how am I supposed to deal with that? How, how are we supposed to live with this colonial idea that I will never be native because of my passport, yeah. but just because they have a passport and they're from the West, they will always be better than any Pakistani or Afghani or any third world developed country. Thank you, I, I, Alicia, and this is a, a big struggle, of course, in, <clears throat> in the United States with, the, with the, the reaction against often affirmative action, which is turned around and used against the people that it's meant to be actually supporting. <laughs> well, affirmative action mainly benefits white people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just true. I know, people are like, no, stop it, it's true. It's become code for uh, advancing black people unfairly, but it actually benefits white women more than it does any racial or ethnic group. Shocking. Um, I want to address this point, and then I want to address the thing that you, that you brought up. I mean, part of it is I, I don't think that we talk about colonization any longer, and that's a problem, right? We, we talk about it as something that happened in the past, um, but it's ever-evolving, right? It's ever-evolving. And so if we deeply understand not just the history, but the evolution of how colonization still exists, then we're able to uh, chart a different path towards what we want to see instead. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, and then this, you know, uh, here's the last thing I want to say, because I know we're on our time. The thing here, y'all is not for us to be feeling guilty, but instead for us to be feeling agitated and inspired and ready to take action. Um, the thing here is not to now go to your friend of color and be like, oh my God, you have it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, right, it is to say, what can I now do? We've talked about a lot of things tonight that are first steps 
It's not my job to chart the path for you, but it is my job to get you inspired, to get in conversation with each other, to talk about what makes sense in this context, and then how are you going to build relationships with other people who are trying to decolonize, other communities who are trying to get free, right? And then how do we define what a real freedom and democracy can look like that actually includes all of us without condition? That is our task. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Alicia. I'm sorry we couldn't get to the rest of the questions, but thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.